0: We'll <music> Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. God, our Father, we give you thanks and praise as your children. Children who trust in the fact that you are with them, providing for them, caring for us. And we know, Lord, that you have a word, a message for each one of us tonight, Lord. So we just ask that you would help us to be open and receptive to whatever that is. We thank you for the gift of this time, this community, and the gift of your word. We pray that our ears and hearts would be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for us. That you would remove any distractions, worries, anxieties, stresses, and doubts from our hearts. Anything that will draw our focus away from this time. And we lay this time at your feet, Lord. We lay our lives at your feet and we ask that your will be done. Speak to us. We are your servants and we are listening. We pray all of this in your most mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> we are in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. That is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 32nd Sunday in ordinary time. So if you want to turn to Matthew 25, we are jumping ahead in the readings. So last week we were in Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, we have the denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus no longer speaking in the nuance of parables. He has faced the questions of the Pharisees in the temple area. And he now, because their tests have failed, he lets them have it and criticizes their false leadership and all the ways they're leading people astray. He does that for the entire 23rd chapter of Matthew. And then, uh, in the 24th chapter, he starts to foretell uh, the end times, the destruction of the temple, uh, different things that will happen when the uh, fruition of his mission happen, and also when he comes back uh, at the end of time. And then he starts to reiterate these different teachings through the use of four different parables. The first parable happens right before what we're reading tonight about the faithful or unfaithful servant. It's a parable really about obeying teachings or obeying orders. The next three parables are in Matthew 25, and we'll be reading those three parables the next three weeks. Okay, so that's the rest of the readings for this liturgical year before we enter into Advent are these three parables, and they're in the middle of what's called the eschatological discourse. Okay, say that five times fast. Uh, The eschatological discourse is basically, it's a fancy way of saying Jesus' teachings about the end of time. Okay, eschatology is the study of the end of time, discourse is teaching. So this is the fifth of of five teachings, main teachings that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's in the fifth narrative section. So this is kind of the, the final show, as it were, of Jesus's ministry. So if you remember, the very beginning teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. The ending teaching begins with, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, and then And the Sermon on the Mount he gives his teaching kind of turning the Torah upside down and now at the end of this eschatological discourse kind of turns all of the expectations of the end times on on their head and really causes us to kind of call attention to are we ready are we prepared so that's what we have in store these next three weeks in a row tonight will be the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the bridesmaids as it's sometimes called so first time through Get a picture for what's being said here. Uh, This only occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, this particular parable. Jesus, again, here is speaking uh, in the area of Jerusalem, temple area. Um, He's back after, before he he goes away and he comes back. So he's speaking uh, to the crowds once again here in the parable of the ten virgins. So first time through, just have this image in your mind. What's being said? What is happening in the parable? And then we'll read it a second time. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones, when taking their lamps, brought no oil with them, but the wise brought flasks of oil with their lamps. Since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, No, for there may not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. While they went off to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into the wedding feast with him. Then the door was locked. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he said in reply, Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour the Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now you get a sense for this parable. We're going to read it a second time. This time, as always, we're going to listen for any particular word or phrase that stands out for you personally. Not to interpret the passage, not for any kind of theological revelation, but what just resonates with you, reminds you of something going on in your life, sparks a thought, a memory, speaks to you in some way, underline those things remember what they are begin to ask why is this standing out to me lord what are you trying to say to me second and final time through Matthew 25 then the kingdom of god of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom five of them were foolish and five were wise the foolish ones when taking their lamps brought no oil with them But the wise brought flasks of oil with their lamps. Since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, there was a cry, behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, no, for there may not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. While they went off to buy it, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went into the feast with him. Then the door was locked. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he said in reply, Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to look back over the things that stood out to you. If you're watching this later, please let us know what those things were. But for those of us here, we're gonna take about the next 10 or 15 minutes at your tables. Feel free to discuss what stood out to you and why. Uh, Join another table if there's uh, no one really at your table. There's some room up here in the front. uh, And take about the next 10 minutes to discuss, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group uh, for questions and answers and further discussion. So take about the next 10 minutes. So, a little bit about weddings at the time of Jesus, because it's always fun to talk about and it might help uh, with some of the imagery here. Um, How weddings worked at Jesus' time in Jewish culture were that um, people needed to be betrothed to be married. And this happened in three different ways. And once you were betrothed, you were basically considered married. So you had the, the The legal status of a married couple, you needed to divorce to be unbetrothed, okay? But the actual wedding didn't happen, it wasn't yet consummated or actually, like, come to fruition until the celebration of the marriage. But, so a betrothal happens, that happens for one of three reasons. One, uh, there is a dowry that is given, Uh, second, there's a contractual agreement, or third, the act of sex. The act of sex at this time actually meant like, we're betrothed, because there was no cultural reality where people could do that outside of the context of marriage, save what they call the oldest prote- uh, pr- profession, prostitution, which was an occurrence, but not as common. Uh, so, and you actually have instances of that in the Bible as well, like the story of Judah and Tamar. So anyways, that's how a wedding is initiated. Uh, the father of, uh, of the, the groom usually is the one to uh, announce the wedding date. And then once the, the day for the wedding comes, you know, invitations go out, this lasts is a week-long celebration. And so in the monotony of daily life, you know, there's not social media, big, you know, like local carnivals, like, you know, weddings, funerals, you know, these are the things that are like that, that, or festivals, feast days, these are the things that kind of color the ordinary days of life and make them different. So this is a very exciting thing for people. The whole town would shut down, people would come in from all over the place for this week-long celebration. And what would happen would be the, uh, the bridegroom would go with his family and his wedding party to um, the, the bride's home and escort the bride to their new home that he had acquired or built during the time of their betrothal. Okay. And along that path, there were the bridesmaids, the bridal party, which are the the virgins, uh, and perhaps other people in the wedding party would uh, have these oil lamps as luminaries, as kind of like a a blessing, a sign of of light and grace to come upon their wedding. So if they weren't there, that would have been a huge sign of insult. That would have been like a, a, a tragedy for that to happen, Okay. Uh, And then once they enter into the wedding home, usually at that point the bride and groom would go and consummate their marriage very awkwardly with their whole family waiting to celebrate. Um, Yes, that's what would happen. The father of the bride would usually go into the bridal chamber after that had happened to get the cloth of the bed as proof that of the virginity of his daughter, okay? This is, I'm telling you, the reality of what was going on. But there's a lot of beautiful theological imagery with that. So anyways, and then they would go out into the week-long celebration with their family and friends um, that would be celebrated of of their wedding, okay? That was how it worked, okay? Seems very crazy to us now, but that was how weddings worked. Okay, so it was very highly anticipated. There was a lot of rubrics and rituals. This was expected. You were awaiting the bridegroom, and it was a sign of honor to be on that path illuminating the way. And it would have been a huge dishonor to abandon that post or to not have oil in your lamps. Okay? And we can go into all the different ways you know, that, that those images of wedding are applied in different areas in Scripture. But specifically for our parable, that's kind of what's at play here. This is why it's so crucial and dire the situation that the ten virgins, a synonymous with the, the term for bridesmaid at the time, uh, this position that they're in, okay? why it's so important, their role. The image, as I was reading this the second time I got, is, is, I don't know if anyone else made this association, but I'd never thought about this before, on Holy Thursday. When we have uh, the liturgy of Holy Thursday, the Eucharist is processed to an altar of repose in here. And what lights the way? Luminaries, people with candles, welcoming the bridegroom, Jesus Christ into this place for adoration, where we're celebrating the Last Supper, the meal in which the new Passover is begun to be consummated, where we have the bridegroom and the bride becoming one in this new covenant, this new relationship. So there's beautiful theological and wedding-based imagery all throughout our sacramental theology. Um, But for the purposes of this reading, that's kind of why this this image is important. That gives you a little bit of context. I think I'll go into some other themes as questions arise, but as I was reading this, a few things came to my mind. And the main theme, um, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Is the question I ask myself. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? You know, it's a basic advice of people who are discerning something. You know, especially young people, if they're wondering, what does God want from me? Does God want me to be a priest, to be a sister, to be single, to be married? What is God calling me to, to in life? And even in the smaller actions, You know, does God want me to take this job or that job at any phase of our life? Are we ready to have more children? Uh, Is it time for us to move? And we have these big questions and we wonder, like, how are we going to know when God is going to tell us? Like, how are we sure? And some of the best advice in discernment is how to be faithful to God in the big moments and know what he's asking us is to do the things he's already asking us to do in the small little moments every day. So part of discernment... And part of faithfully following what God is asking you to do is just, are you doing your everyday responsibilities as a citizen, at your job, as a family member, in your friendships, you know, or are you a procrastinator? Because procrastination in the spiritual life, these whole sections of the end of the Gospels do not bode well for anyone who would spiritually procrastinate because they're constant admonitions to always be ready, always be prepared. The second reading for this Sunday, I always record the, the podcast that I do, the episode, apart from Bible study, is always based on the second reading, and I recorded it today, and so if, if you listen, forgive me for repeating, but um, the, that, that reading from First Thessalonians is uh, where a lot of the theology from Protestants of the rapture comes from. It's, it's the, the verse the verses that are associated with the idea of a rapture. And so, I use this analogy that if I told you that I would give you $1 billion if I showed up to your house and your bed was made, but I wasn't going to tell you what day I was going to come, it would be at some point in your life, during the day, at some point in the day, I would come, I would make sure that you were there, so don't worry about not being there, but I would show up and if your bed was made, I would hand you $1 billion. Don't you think you would make your bed every day? Like I think you would kind of have to be like not very smart not to make your bed every day, because even if you didn't want a billion dollars, you could certainly do a lot of good with it and give it to people who did need it. And it would be the easiest billion dollars you ever made. It would just be make your bed every day. Brothers and sisters, eternal life is infinitely more valuable than a billion dollars. And the same standards apply. You don't know. When Jesus is going to come or when your life is going to end. But one of those two things will happen someday, guaranteed at some point in your life. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to do the things that God has asked you to so that when he shows up, you get the billion dollars, the eternal life? It's that simple. We overcomplicate it with like, oh, man, it's just really hard. And I just don't know if I can overcome this. Like No, like Jesus could come now. Is it worth it? Are the things that we struggle with and we're grappling with, the things that we're attached to, the sins that we struggle with, are they worth hell? Are they worth losing heaven to us? Because when I read passages like this, I really have to give myself a gut check and really look at everything in my life and what I'm attached to and ask myself, is it worth it? Because I don't know. It could happen right now. One day that will work. Um, It'd be so cool. Anyways, no. No. But it reminds me of the words of St. Augustine. Like, you have to pray as if everything depended on God and work as if everything depended on you. Like, yes, we need that prayer, we need that trust in the God, but are you doing the work? Are we doing the work so that we are ready when Jesus comes? The image I really uh, like in this passage is the image of the oil because oil is what's used in anointings. The, The phrase, the word for Christ, the word Messiah, means anointed one. And you anoint with oil. So it's a direct image, like, is your lamp full with Christ? Is the lamp of your life full of the anointed one or not? Because if it's not, then when the time comes, we won't be ready. We won't be ready. I think the passage earlier in Matthew that really illuminates this well is Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21 because the same language is used here in Matthew 25. In Matthew 7:21, it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What do they say in verse 11? Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. The exact same words from this parable that we just read. And the very next section is on the two foundations. Everyone who listens to these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man. Like the five wise versions. And then verse 26 and everyone who listens to the words of mine but does not act, act on them will be like a fool who built his house on sand. Jesus has already taught on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's warned them already, just because you know me, just because you say, Lord, Lord, if you believe I'm the Savior, it's not enough. You need to do the works that match that statement of faith. And if you do these things that I have asked of you, you will be like the wise man who built his house on a firm foundation. But if you do not, you will be like a foolish person who builds their house on sand. And when the storm comes, when unexpected moments happen, even like the unexpected moment of the second coming, that house will collapse. And we cannot sit there and complain like we didn't know. We've been given every warning. We cannot complain and act as though, oh, a house should have stood on sand. Like, it's common sense. We know. And whether we were procrastinating and putting that foundation in or not, in the end, there is not going to be a second chance. Our life is full of daily second chances, third and fourth chances, to go to reconciliation, to repent, to be in relationship with God, to do the works that He is asking us to do. When that moment comes, that's it. Are we ready? Am I ready? All of the readings for the rest of the liturgical year are going to be asking those questions. Are you awake? Are you alive in Christ? Have you fallen asleep? Are you ready? Be prepared him to come. What are you doing with what he has given you? Are you ready? That's all I'll say for now. Questions? Thoughts? Things that stood out to you? Yes. In verse 9, I was just as to why the wise virgins led the, the Polish virgins astray to go to the virgins. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it can seem like they're kind of being jerks, right? Like, they've got plenty of oil, it seems like. Why not give some up? Well, they don't know how long delayed the bridegroom is. They just know that he's starting his way toward them. Now, if they give away their oil, and he's later than they anticipate, now there is no one to greet them, and no oil. Complete dishonor for the bridal party. So the wise virgins, they do the wise thing, and they offer a wise suggestion. Even though it's midnight, this whole city is prepared for this wedding. So go and try and find some oil while we stay here to honor the position that we've been asked to have. That's the best that they can offer. So they use the wisdom that they have. You can't give someone else wisdom. You can't make someone else wise. You know, they, they have what they've prepared for. They prepared properly. But they offer a suggestion. They're not just like, well, sucks to be you. You know, like they very well could have done that. But they are offering help. But it's help to the point that they are not putting themselves in a detrimental position. And that's good advice for us, too, when it comes to service, when it comes to evangelizing, when it comes to the type of company that we keep, the friends that we have. We want to do the work of evangelizing, of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. But we also have to be cautious to not do it to the point where we are now suffering detrimentally and we are putting ourselves in situations to now be unwise or to be tempted or to fall into sin. That would be going too far to try and reach that person. Hey, we, we, we're meant to go as far as God calls us to, but not farther. Otherwise, we then become foolish. We run out of oil ourselves. So we have to be cautious and set the right boundaries. So even though it seems on the surface like they're not really helping a brother out, sister out, um, they're doing the wise thing. And they do offer a prudent suggestion, the only real suggestion they can offer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um so meaningful sure and so i was wondering what like, and we were wondering at our table about the meaning of 10 and also another thing isn't it true that in the like before with the prophets not not at the time of jesus mm-hmm. that the people had multiple wives Yes. Yeah. Before even the time of the prophets, like uh, King David had multiple wives. Um, Abraham had children by multiple people. Uh, Israel had four wives, children by four people. Um, So that was more common then. You will not find in the Old Testament God saying that that is okay. You will have people who are righteous and who've sought a relationship with God doing things that God didn't say were okay. And then if you follow the trajectory of their life, you see the consequences of those decisions. And so part of the Old Testament is is unclear or confusing sometimes because it doesn't always directly tell you what's right and wrong. It shows you based on the consequences of that person's life. So just because the Bible records something doesn't mean it approves of it. It's a very important thing, especially when you look at the Old Testament to remember. There's genocide and incest and crazy stuff in the Old Testament. And people will use that to condemn the Bible. And that's an improper, it's an illogical fallacy. Um, we have to look at what, are, what do the consequences of those actions, how do they play out for that person. And it's always in the destructive negative end. Um, as for the numbers, um, 10 usually is used as a multiplier. So 10 just signifies like a group of people. So if you see 10, 100, 1,000, that can just be added as a multiplier. I think the real numerological symbolism is 5 and 5. Because five symbolizes the Torah, the five books of the Torah that were sacred, the law that was given through Moses. And so those wise five represent the Torah. Those unwise, the foolish five, represent kind of those who don't follow the Torah or an anti-law, an anti-Torah, those who do not do what God has asked them to do. Um, and so that's how I would interpret kind of the, the numerical significance there because there's no there's no as far as I know Any historical precedent for there having to be a certain number of bridesmaids for the wedding? It's just whoever you select so it doesn't have to be ten um, But I think that's why it's five and five because five represents the law Yeah, yeah great question. Yeah Oh, yeah Mm-hmm. And I know the five virgins that were foolish were late to the game, but it mm-hmm. seems like they were trying to like, get their act together at the last minute. Mm-hmm. So it just makes me wonder a little bit about like, last minute mercy. Like, I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Oh, like, yeah. We want to, but we are just getting to this. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there is absolutely mercy, but mercy is never without justice. These two things go hand in hand. And in this situation, it is very common knowledge as to the expectation of the role of the bridesmaid. And so if they had happened upon this situation, and they're like, oh, we're here, we'll help you. Oh, but we don't have much oil in our lamps. Like, there's no really culpability on their part. Like, they had no knowledge of the fact that they needed to be there. However, they've been pre-selected for this job, and there was a certain responsibility that was required of them because of that. And they failed that responsibility, they chose not to prepare. And so that choice bears a consequence. And even though they regret the fact that that consequence was negative, that really wouldn't be a condition of something like last minute mercy. Last minute mercy might be someone saying, I didn't know that I needed this oil, please, like let me in, I'll go get some. And then the master of the wedding or the the, the wedding feast, whoever it is that answers the door, the master of the house saying, okay, I understand, come on in, you know. Uh, so that's, that, I think, is the distinction. Like Many of us, like we kind of know what's expected of us. There's a sense of it's common sense. It's been revealed to us. We're not ignorant of the law of God. And part of that is, we, I talked about this yesterday at Catholicism 101, those are the conditions that meet a mortal sin. In order for a mortal sin to be a mortal sin, it needs to be something that's severe, a grave matter. You need to fully consent to do it, but you also need to be aware that it is a mortal sin. You need to fully choose and have full knowledge of the fact that that is a sinful act. And so if you don't know, like your culpability is lessened or the circumstances led to you, you know, falsely or accidentally maybe falling into something, you're not going to be as culpable. But if you fully know this is my responsibility, they're aware, they consent to the role of bridesmaid and not having oil in your lamps would be a grave matter or a grave issue of disrespect to the wedding party. They are, they're already kind of making the bed of foolishness. And they have to they have to lay in it, so that's the difference. Yeah, this is why in James chapter three it says, um, "Not many of you should be teachers, because you will be judged more harshly." And, and you know that's me. So you know you guys maybe don't have to worry about that as much as I do. But um, but it's because certain responsibilities bear certain levels of of consequences and punishment if we don't adhere to what we're called to. And there is a baseline version of that for those of us who are Catholic, because we've been revealed the truth that Jesus has given us, and we have a, a level of responsibility. Like, we are meant to go out as the, the, the kingdom priest, the priesthood of the faithful, to go out and evangelize and make disciples of all nations. That Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, that's not reserved just for priests, bishops, and deacons, and sisters, and really holy people that are saints. It's all of our job to, sh- to share the good news and to make disciples. We all bear that responsibility from the moment we are baptized. Baptism is a missionary sacrament. Because you are initiated into the faith community, you come to Mass, even if you can't receive the Eucharist, you still come to Mass, and the Mass is named for go and be sent, ita misa est, go forth. Everything that we do sacramentally is about us going forth. We, ha- we know that that's our responsibility, and so we're going to be held accountable to that more so than other people who don't know that, or who aren't part of of our church, or who aren't baptized. Other uh, questions, thoughts? Things that stood out to you? I want to point out something. If you have more questions, please ask, because we have time. Um, But I want to point out something here, too. Recognize where this happens in the Gospel of Matthew. This is before, obviously, Jesus is handed over. And notice the similarities here. You know, Jesus has a group of people uh, around him, the disciples. Uh, Ten, this is a loose association, but ten is the number of those disciples that um, are not Judas, who left completely, and are not John, who stayed faithful at the foot of the cross. They're the rest. Kind of left, are you going to be wise? Are you going to be foolish? But also, they, this kind of wedding imagery, Jesus is about to consummate this new Passover that he is instituting. They go off into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, and what do the disciples do? They fall asleep foolishly. They're not prepared to take up the responsibility Jesus has given them to keep watch. And what does that lead to? Jesus being handed over. The responsibility, lack of responsibility, leads to embarrassment, probably on their part, shame, guilt, betrayal. Very similar things that are happening here. And that just shows the extent of the mercy of Jesus in those moments and after the fact, because unlike the parable, Or he says, I do not know you. Jesus gives them that opportunity that they do not deserve, but he gives them nonetheless to repent, especially Peter. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? You know, feed my lambs, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, in John 21. So uh, there's a lot of interesting imagery here for the events that happen in the rest of that week, that Jesus is in a way prefiguring and warning the disciples, you need to be wise You need to be ready, and you need to be taking up the responsibilities that I will give you, especially in these climactic moments of his mission and his ministry. Do not fail in the responsibilities that you have been given. Otherwise, there are serious consequences. And what more serious? I mean, imagine feeling as though, I think about this so much, like St. Peter, I talk about this all the time, when Jesus at the Last Supper said, one of you will betray me, and then he turns to Peter shortly thereafter, and says, before tonight is over, you will deny me three times. Peter was probably like, I'm the betrayer. I like totally suck. Like, this is not good. And then he goes ahead and does it. And then that betrayal, or he sees him being handed over, he chooses not to help him. He denies him, and then he sees him be crucified. I mean, he's like probably in the worst possible state he could possibly be in, probably feels the burden of that responsibility of Jesus' crucifixion entirely on himself, especially knowing I'm the one that Jesus said would be in charge. I'm the one that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to. I'm the one that he gave the power and the authority to bind on earth what will be bound in heaven and loose on earth what will be loosed in heaven. Wow, have I royally messed that up. And yet, because of the resurrection, Jesus is able to give him mercy.
1: We are now living in
0: the age of the resurrection. We've been given the mercy already, which is why that extension of do you love me more than these, won't be given to us because it's already being freely handed to us. We have already been given the responsibility. We've already been invited into this this faith that Jesus created and instituted for us, invited into the sacramental life. What are we doing with those responsibilities? What are we doing with that gift that we've been given? Are we being good stewards of it? Are we allowing that grace to change us and affect us? So I see a lot of imagery here um, that's similar to that as well. Other questions? Things that stood out to you? Hmm, not a chatty bunch this evening. Yeah? It's a little off topic. Please. Um, talking, so, uh, Christ is being anointed. Yes. Is there a moment in his life where he was specifically anointed? Right. All I can think of is Mary or Martha washing his feet or something about that. Yes, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's Mary who does it mm-hmm. um, in the, um, their house, Lazarus, Mary and Martha's house, where she anoints his feet with costly perfume, mm-hmm. and that is a moment that many theologians mark as like a symbolic anointing of Jesus now coming to the fruition of his role as Messiah, because it happens, I think, directly before he enters Jerusalem in the final week of his life. It happens during this week, while he goes in and he's shortly thereafter handed over. So at that moment, kind of all of those positions of the anointed one, many people have been the anointed one in scripture. Uh, David, uh, uh, Samuel, uh, the prophet, uh, priests, Levites, You know, and they're all anointed as part of their office, priests, prophets, and kings. Jesus is the culmination of all of those roles, and he completes them. And that symbolic anointing is representative of what he's been doing this whole time, to come and be the new high priest, the once and for all priest, who still is our one and only priest. He is the final prophetic word, speaking through the apostles and giving us a new teaching, and he is the king of kings, priest, prophet, and king. All meet their fruition in Jesus Christ. And so um, that is the only instance that I can think of when he's actually physically anointed with oil. but. Um, that became synonymous with the one who would come, who was the anointed one, the messiah, who would fulfill all of these prophecies as well. So it became less of an anticipation of like this person's gonna be covered in oil, and more like this person's gonna be like all these great anointed people we've had before, but will be the best of all of them combined in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Do we know specifically who he's giving this parable to of virgins? Are all the parables given to the Pharisees? Is it kind of all in the same group of people? Well, I believe up until like 24, um, in in chapter 24, he leaves the temple area and was going his way. His disciples approach him and they point out the temple buildings. Uh, Then they leave and they go out to the Mount of Olives. And he continues to speak to them about the end of time. And then actually, I I think I probably misspoke about where this happens. I think he may still be on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem when he's giving these parables. So if we take the trajectory of this and we don't interrupt it, I don't think there's anywhere where it says he leaves from there. He's very likely still in the Mount of Olives. And who's the audience? Just the disciples then at this point, yeah. Which is more appropriate for that imagery of what is about to happen that this actually applies to some of those disciples, that he's speaking directly to them. Yeah. Other thoughts? Questions? Curiosities? Threats? <laughs> in our language, in English, um, We use the word to know in uh, many different contexts. I know math. I know my wife. But in other languages, there is a differentiation between types of knowing. And where God says, I do not know you here, the word here for know that's used in this, I believe, is oida, which is the Greek word for like knowing the fullness of a person. So kind of like how I know my wife, it's this, this complete knowledge of another person, a relationship. And then there's the other type of knowledge, which is in Greek, gnosko, I believe, which is like knowing information about someone. And this is a distinction I make often. You know, Do we know about Jesus or do we know Jesus? Do we know a lot of good information about him? Do we kind of pile up theological knowledge and books and spiritual reading and we have great theological conversations but maybe we're not in love with the Lord. I was thinking about this earlier today. I was thinking about there's a lot of things in my life right now that I'm just very excited about. And then this voice in the back of my head, it was like Jesus kind of talking to me saying like, but yeah, are you most excited about me? Like the things that I get really jazzed about. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to go do this. Or I can't wait to go have this experience or take my kids here or there or like, you know, work on this project or do this really fun thing. Do I have that kind of energy and zeal when it comes to walking through the doors of that chapel or falling onto my knees to pray or asking God, like, what do you have in store for me today? Do I have that kind of anticipation or do I treat that with a little bit more monotony than I'd like to admit? I can get easily excited about everything else, but when it comes to the Lord, maybe I'm not, I've lost a bit of that zeal. And that can be an indicator that this is trending toward more, I know a lot of information about, you know? I don't know anyone who's excited about the fact that like two plus two equals four. You know, just like the facts of math. But there are people, weird people, but there are people who get excited about seeing math applied in the world. Like, and and this happens to me too. Like I'm very good at math. And I've given this in talks where I put statistics up and I talk about the vastness of numbers and the likelihood that our universe was created by accident and the statistical likelihood that certain prophecies would be fulfilled by a random person instead of by Jesus and how astronomically unlikely that is. I'm getting like fired up right now just because of math, you know? Like that's different. That's like knowing the fullness of because of the relationship, because of the zeal, the love for the Lord, it's not just information. It's not just information what is your relationship with God? Is it more information or is it relationship? Okay, because it doesn't matter how much more I learn about my wife. It's the experience of being with her and sacrificing for her and spending time with her that makes me fall more in love with her. It's not like tomorrow she's going to be like, did you know I'm allergic to pumpkin seeds? I'm like, oh my gosh, I love you so much. You know, like that new knowledge is just deepening my desire for you. Like, no, like, Information doesn't do it. You know, it gets you a little closer, sure, but that's not what does it. You know, and so all of the, you know, in, in, in other languages, saber and conocer, or in French, connaître um, um, and, and um, oh man, I forgot the word in French. Shoot. Um, but it's another S word. But like, there's these different forms of knowing. We lose it in English. Okay? But do we know just information about God? Do we know Jesus? Do we know him? Do we have a personal relationship with him? Savoir. That's what it is in French. Anyways, uh, do we know him? Do you know him? Because I make this analogy all the time. You're either in a relationship with God or you're a stalker. You're digging through his trash, learning all the information about him, but you and him don't even have conversations. You're just hiding in the bushes. That's not what the Lord wants. The Lord wants to be in relationship with you. Anyway, yes. Okay, since you brought up now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinated me when you look through the beginning of the Old Testament, you know, the numbers are given in thousands. Yes. Now, was the base ten number system used back then, mm-hmm. or how did how was that all play? Yeah. So, um, he, Hebrew. Let me see if I remember this right. Yeah. So the Hebrew language is a gematria language. So every letter represents a number. And once you get to 10, it goes up by 10. So it is a base 10 numerical system. Um, I don't know if every other language or system at that time was also, but theirs was. So there is some kind of precedent when you see the thousands of like the troops of armies from the tribes coming from the Exodus to kind of divide that by 100 to get the real number because they would, as a literary device, just times everything by 100 to make it seem really big and, and impressive. However, there are a couple instances where it's like, All of them are like in the thousands. It's like 825,000, 865,000. And then there's one tribe that's like 720,150. And you're like, well, shoot, that doesn't work to divide it by 100. So it could have been accurate, but it is normally used as a literary device to just convey a mass amount of people and the actual, when you take off, by the hundred, is actually the, the correct number. So uh, we don't really know because we have those little disparities where like we can't, it doesn't apply to all, so we can't treat it as a rule. So, yeah. Yes? Can you talk about a little bit our responsibility on bringing family mem- members closer to the faith? Like how much yeah. effort do we have to put in? Like where's the cutoff? Where's the cutoff? Yeah. So what's our responsibility to bring family members into the faith? How much effort do we have to put in? Um, I'm a firm believer that you are in your family on purpose. Like you're not just like the son or the daughter of your parents, to random people who decided to have a kid and you plopped out, but like God chose specifically for your soul to embody the, the fetus that developed in the womb of your specific mother, you know, and that you were meant for your specific parents. And that you have a specific role within your family, both the gifts that you have, the responsibilities you're given, and the responsibility to evangelize. And so I would say if there is someone that we have to evangelize first on our list, it's the people that God introduced us to first. Mom, dad, brother, sister. And so they need to at least have the most effort and the most of our zeal and we cannot kind of relegate them to last on the list in an effort to like, well, I'm gonna go be a missionary to other people in the world. That's a wonderful thing, but I don't think any honest missionary, even people like Mother Teresa, were going off from Albania to Calcutta without thinking like, "Uh, you know, my family's probably going to hell, but that's okay. Like, I think she probably knew that that was covered. you know. So I think we need to really make a concerted effort. Now, if the person's not open, you know that that doesn't mean we end those um those efforts but we can only go so far but i think i think when we are judged or the end of time happens whatever's first and we know the fullness of the reality of heaven and hell i think we will weep at the fact that we did not try hard enough for everyone who does not make it i really do i know i will when i think about like Someone said this to me once um, at my old parish. It was like a patriarch of a big family from our old parish. And he used to say this to all of his kids and his grandkids. He would say, at the end of your life, when you get to heaven, you're going to be walked into a stadium. And in the seats of that stadium are going to be everyone that you helped get to heaven in some way. Other people may have helped them too, but you affected their journey in some way. Is your stadium full or is your stadium empty? He used to always say that. And he would say that, and I was like, oh, that's really good. But then I automatically started thinking about the empty seats. And I always think about the empty seats. Like who could have been there if I had tried a little harder? Who could have been there if I was willing to be uncomfortable? Who could have been there if I had reached out, if I wasn't so concerned with myself or what was going on in my life? And um, I speak from a very pained place of that question because my entire immediate and extended family has left the Catholic Church. I'm the only Catholic on both sides. My mom is one of seven, my dad is one of four. I don't know a single cousin, grandchild, aunt, or uncle that is not a member of the church, no matter the efforts that I have made. Um, Not Catholic yet. Um, Yet is my favorite word. Um, But um, so I, I, I feel like I live this and I fail this on a daily basis. So I speak this most of all to myself. We need to keep trying. And we can't lose hope. You know, some of you have children who've left the church, who've walked away, grandchildren. And that's a very painful thing. That's something that I cannot yet relate to. I was giving a talk at St. Killian's yesterday and I was talking about parenting and I like my daughter's five and I already think about her leaving when she's eighteen and I'm already trying to plant seeds for her to like feel like she needs to move next door to us or never leave. Like I'm just like, you know, already in conversations. I'm like, I love you, never leave. You know. She's like, I won't daddy. I'm like, Yes, live right next door. She's like, I can't wait. And so I just like I keep saying it every day. Maybe she'll think it was her idea. You know, but like I can't imagine even just that letting go let alone, then, the worry for their soul if they've gone astray. You know, like, I just, I, 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 I sympathize, but I, I can't even know the reality of that, of what can be a very painful thing for parents and grandparents, to just have to, have to let them make their own mistakes and trust. But that doesn't mean we lose hope. That doesn't mean we don't stop trying. We don't stop praying for them. We don't stop inviting. Um, but it, it, each relationship is different. Every person is different. Some parents or siblings will respond. To a direct invitation, some will bat it away and be offended. So we have to be careful in the way that we do it, um, and, and and love them into a place of hopefully deeper understanding. You know, I think often about the words of Fulton Sheen: uh, "You can win an argument, but lose a soul." And nowhere uh, do we argue more than in our family. I think so. That's an important thing to keep in mind. So. I think it is our responsibility to never stop trying, to persevere, to never lose hope, to pray for them every single day and to pray for their conversion, to ask other people to pray for their conversion, um, and to keep inviting. Yeah. But, yeah, you're welcome. But if they don't make that decision, they have free will, you know? So, yeah. And now my parents just moved to Orange County, so all of you can help me. So, yeah. I got to get them here first, but (laughs) they live in Lake Forest now, yeah. So, yes, yeah. Any other questions, thoughts? One final? Anyone have a burning comment or question? Yes. What do you do with all the the, uh, requests for money, et cetera, at Christmas time? I'm just overwhelmed with the mail. Oh, from different organizations? Right, and they're all so beautiful and, and sad. And, you know, how do like, so how much do I give to them? How much do I save them? My, my family doesn't need it, but I'm not going to give them nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you only have so much money. True. But you have a lot of prayer and a lot of other gifts. Um, I think our responsibility is to provide for those that are in our um, that are immediately in front of us. And going above and beyond that for other organizations, that comes after you have provided for the people that God has placed in front of you for your immediate care, your family, your neighbors, the people that you directly know. So don't be overwhelmed by it. You know? It's the season of giving, but also the season of incessant asking. So um, you know, be prudent in, in how you do that. And also recognize like a, a check or you know, amount of money is not going to make a disciple. You know? So loving someone, praying for them, walking with them works, works far more wonders. So, Don't feel so bad about not being able to give the gift or not being able to provide in a physical way. Maybe I can't give food to this person or I can't, you know, uh, give them money or maybe I don't trust them enough to give them money. But I can be present to them and I can look them in the eye and I can be kind to them and I can ask them about their life. You know, Um, this happens a lot when we pull up on homeless people, um, you know, on the side of the road. There's a tendency to just not make eye contact because we don't know what to do, especially if we have nothing to give them. Um, and I think they're so. Uh, imagine that being your entire existence, where you are a person that everyone refuses to look at. How lonely that must feel. So I try and make a concerted effort, even though I have, you know, nothing most days, even for myself. Um, I roll down the window and I say hello. You know, hi, how are you? What's your name? You know, and if I have an opportunity to meet them, you know, when I'm not in a car, like, how did you get here? Like, tell me your story. You know, can I pray for you in any way? And to be able to pray for them on the side of the road. You know? And it's amazing how honest they will be once you ask them to pray for them. You're like, actually, this sign is kind of a lie. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I'm like, it's okay, I'll still pray for you. But it you know, doesn't mean they're all lying. But I just find it interesting that they're willing to open up and be more honest when you actually show them that I see you. I see you. So back to our responsibility for other people. You know, that great question. Um, our presence. Our presence can, can do so much more than our money, than even our, our teaching, or our words of wisdom, just simply being there, acknowledging the presence, acknowledging Christ alive in another person can be what someone needs. So, yeah. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this room, the gift of everyone here, of this study, and of your word. We pray, Lord, that um, whatever resonated with us from tonight, all the different facets of this conversation, and the ways that your spirit moved and, and provoked different questions and all the different areas and topics we were able to cover and discuss tonight. We just pray, Lord, that each one of us would be able to take one thing, to take one thing home, to ruminate on it, to pray, pray into it, and to really be challenged in some way. Whether it's our readiness, whether it's the people in our lives who need to know the good news, our family, our friends, the ways in which we're present to other people, the ways in which we're called to serve, whatever it is, Lord, that you, um, you reveal that to us and you help us to find tangible ways this week uh, and in the coming weeks to, to make a difference, to make an effort to change in the ways that we need to so that we are ready, so that our lamps are full and trimmed, bearing the light of Christ to the world and bringing joy to others. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.